Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest. On the Bob phone from West Yorkshire, broadcaster and journalist, Andy Kershaw. Flashing for the warriors whose strength is not to fight. Flashing for the refugee on the unarmed road of flight. And for each and every underdog, soldier in the night, we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. Fabulous. Fabulous. Uh, welcome. And uh, why did you choose uh, that song to start with? It's one of his best, you know, uh, amidst uh, such an enormous canon of, of great songs. But there are lines in that which, you know, resonate even to this day. I remember being on Radio 1 in the mid-80s mm-hmm. and playing Chimes of Freedom. And I think I played it back to back with that wonderful live Bruce Springsteen version of it as well from the Amnesty International yeah. tour in, in the 80s. And, um, and saying, you know, if Amnesty International needed a theme tune, <laughs> this should be it. And I, I, I actually think that a couple of years later, I don't for a minute think it was on my recommendation, but the, the, they did actually take that up. And it, it did become a kind of Amnesty... Um, theme song. They're such humanitarian sentiments, aren't they? I mean, yeah, there are so many great lines in that song, which are are still relevant to this. Well, probably more relevant now than they were then. Mm. No, I agree. When there's 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 the measure of the songwriter. eh? I was saying to, to Kerry earlier on. I've I've got a teenage son, and I and I always I'm trying to convey the sentiments of you know whose strength is not to fight, that, that pacifism yes. is, has got to be the baseline and we don't solve problems by aggression, you know. And the unarmed road of flight, I mean, the, the refugee crisis of the last few years, there's such, yeah. there's such resonant lines, you know. Well, you know, I've, and I've been on those roads myself wearing my other hat as a, a foreign correspondent and a war reporter. I've stood on those unarmed roads of flight and, yeah. you know, seen people pouring out of Rwanda in 1994, for example, you know, it's, uh, it really chimes with me, that song, Chimes of Freedom. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, because obviously you, you heard this song before that, but there must have been a humanitarian strain in Dylan's music and in this song, which really, as you say, chimed. Um, well, look, I grew up, I first became aware of the world in the mid-1960s, you know, because of the, the timing of my birth, and they were very important years for, for for kind of justice and civil rights, you know, the civil rights movement in the United States, the anti-Vietnam war campaigns, the demonstrations. And and so, you know, I was, I, I was almost, I was like cultivated in, in that environment. And so when I first heard Dylan and I first heard songs like that, um, they immediately uh, resonated with me. When when was that? When do you think you first? Oh, well, I, I'll tell you precisely. I mean, you know, I must have been aware of him in some sense because my dad gave me a transistor radio in that winter between 1968 and 69, and I used to lie in bed and listen to that at night and thereafter. So I must have heard stuff on the radio back then, and I was listening to. There was no popular, uh, there was the light program or, well, Radio 1 and Radio 2, but they weren't even on in the evenings, so or Radio 1 wasn't. I'd be listening to Radio Luxembourg on American Forces Network. And I must have heard, you know, if you think of the timing, I must have heard of stuff like Lay, Lay, Delay and things like that. It didn't make any impression on me at all. But somebody in 1973, when I was 13 years old, 
And I can't remember who it was, you know, it drives me mad that I can't remember. Somebody gave me a second-hand copy of Highway 61 Revisited, and that was truly life-changing. I remember putting it on. We weren't allowed rock and pop music in, in the house, me and my sister. Um, my dad had a, was very hostile towards it. And my parents must have gone out. And I remember clearly putting stylus to vinyl on Highway 61 and hearing, of course, the opening track like a rolling stone for the first time when I was 13 years of age. It's, a, it's an old cliche that we as journalists ought to avoid, but nothing was, truly, nothing was ever the same again. Mm -hmm. it, it was like that moment of revelation where you thought, God, there is, an, there is another way to look at life. Had nothing affected you? Well, obviously nothing had affected you like that before, but what about, you know, pop music of the time, if you were like... 13, oh, until then, I'd, I'd, I'd wanted to be in the Beach Boys. But being in landlocked Rochdale in Lancashire, just um, north of Manchester, mm. there weren't many possibilities, really, for joining the Beach Boys, uh, especially as I couldn't swim and certainly not surf. <laughs> um, but I loved the Beach Boys. I loved them. I still do, you know. Um, that, that kind of idealised world of early 1960s California with, you know, honey-coloured girls and everybody with implausibly white teeth and, oh, and recreational road accidents. and. Um, <laughs> but they weren't was, singing, was, is there a hole for me to get sick in, were they? <laughs> they weren't, were they? Um, so what, what was it the was it the mystery and the darkness that I've never you? heard anything like it. I didn't know that that kind of stuff existed, and it was that just that big sound as well. You know that 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 whack that uh, announces like a Rolling Stone, Bobby Gregg's opening snare drum shot, and then the way the whole band then kicks in, you know, a beat behind, and and th th this was just another world to me, and that was it. It was it was just. Uh, total love from that moment, and I became that's that's when I became an obsessive. I wanted to know everything about this man, and I collected, as far as in those days, pocket money would allow. I eventually, amassed all his records, uh, unhappily, even a copy of Self Portrait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't get us started on that. But did, so, did your dad come to terms with the fact that Bob Dylan was blaring out of your room, or did you? <laughs> Strangely enough, this is really, really odd, isn't it? And I've, I've got it. See, my dad died 10 years ago. And I, I went through a cardboard box of some stuff the other day that I've been carting around from one flat or one house or another over the last 20-odd oh, years. And I found in this box, amongst many other things, a greetings card on which there's a picture of Bob. And it's, it's definitely on, in the UK on the 66 tour because it's that haircut and everything else. And I open it, and inside, and um, I had a lump in my throat when I read this. It, it, it says, happy birthday, mea culpa for earlier sins, re this man. All the best, Dad. Um, my dad, towards the end of his life, actually decided Dylan was great. Whereas when I was about 14... You know, the, the habitual routine shouts up the stairs would be, turn that bloody thing down, that man can't <laughs> sing. Well, that's what you want your father to be yelling up the stairs, though, isn't it? I mean, well, he came, he came round to him in the end, which is remarkable, really. I think it's possibly because in later life he got himself a much younger wife. Um, and I, I, I think she possibly converted him. Um, oh, I ought, I ought to warn you, boys, um, that I live right next to the railway tracks here in 
Todmorden in West Yorkshire, and so we, we, we might get the we might get the rumble of a train going through this interview at some point. Well, we get that. But may I point bad, out? That's very little Richard, isn't it? It takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. Exactly. Exactly. If you've got any dogs, you can throw towards the microphone. Have them bark. You know, I believe in the streets, the dogs are barking. Yes. There you go. Perfect. And and didn't you, um, wasn't there a story about Dylan uh, getting in the way of your A-levels? Oh, crikey, honestly. Um, yes. Um, it was so important as well. You know, I was determined I was going to Leeds University. And I was actually at school. Yeah, what some people, I suppose, would call the SWAT. You know, I was... I was I was a bright lad and I, I did well in all these subjects. And I was doing history, economics and Spanish and something called general studies for four, four air levels. Yeah, and I was, I was kind of like, you know, expected to do really well in the exams and all that. And then blow me, in January or February 1978, I opened a copy of a Sunday newspaper, The Observer or something like that, and there's an advert that Dylan's coming to do a tour in June 78. Well, not really a tour. He was doing six nights at Earl's Court in London and gave ticket details. I had to go and camp out outside a record shop in Manchester at six o'clock one Saturday evening. I finally got to the counter and got me one single five pound ticket to see Dylan at Earl's Court on June the 20th, 1978 at six o'clock the following morning. I was 12 hours on that pavement. And then the examination board that organised the A-levels went and announced its timetable for the exams. Mm. And, my God, my economics A-level was on the afternoon of June the 20th, 1978. What was I going to do? Well, I went into the exam, and it was a three-hour exam, and I sat there for an hour and a half, and I got all this already arranged... I did exactly half the, the duration of the exam. I dashed off the three or four essays or whatever was required in an hour and a half. I thought very clumsily. And then, still in my school uniform, of course, <laughs> I rushed out to school. A friend of mine who wasn't doing economics and so wasn't in the exam that day, called Bob Smith, was outside with the, his mum and dad and boss him a little mini. And he erased me from the Hume Grammar School for Boys Oldham the five or six miles to Piccadilly Station in Manchester, where still in my school uniform, I jumped on the train and I went to London and found my way to Earl's Court. And I got in there just as, as I got through the, the, the barriers and everything, I was racing up these escalators to try and find my seat. He'd already come on and um, he'd gone straight into, baby, please stop crying. And there was an usher out there who held open this big, heavy black curtain for me and I dived into... The, the, the kind of blackness of Earl's Court and eventually found my seat, which I think was somewhere just outside of Nottingham. I was, I, I was so far, so far <laughs> back from the stage. And that was it. Um, and he was absolutely bloody terrible. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I was heartbroken. I was really heartbroken. And, you know, I remember catching that train back that night to Manchester and it took all night to get back it was called the milk train and it just clanged along for hours and hours and it dumped you in Manchester it's about five o'clock in the morning and I thought oh for god's sake and for that I've blown my chances of going to Leeds University because I've, I've you know I've run out of my air level economics exam halfway through so why was he so terrible I mean you... it was cabaret it was Las Vegas it was it was dreadful it was that awful band 
that he had in, in 1978, the band that you hear on, on the live Buddha Khan ah, right, uh, yeah. LP. It was, and I, of course, Kerry, Luke, what I wanted is I wanted the band. I, I, mm. I, I wanted Bob 1966, mm. and this was 12 years later, and it was a, a group more suited to backing up Neil Diamond. No more but play, anyway, play I, fucking I, loud, none of that. Uh, no, uh, 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 now hang on, I must take issue with you there. He doesn't say that. No, well, I've, I've had many a discussion with fellow swivel-eyed Dylanologists yeah, about yeah. this, <laughs> um, and he doesn't say that. It doesn't make any sense for him to say. Mm. Incidentally, I got a grade A at A-level economics. Somehow or other, astonishingly, as I've you know, only <laughs> been in there for half the length of the exam, but I got grade A and I got to Leeds. No, he doesn't say that. It doesn't make any sense for him to say, play fucking loud, because they'd already been playing fucking loud. That's, That's always bothered me, I have to say. You louder, think, louder. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, you, you know my special Dylan area is 65 to 66. Yes. I've interviewed many people who were there at the Free Trade Hall and other gigs on the 66 tour. One of the things that didn't become apparent until I started to talk to those people was how loud it actually was. Mm. And a lot of the hostility and the resentment and the, and the almost civil unrest arose as much from the volume as it did from their disagreement with him having become converted to electricity and mm. psychedelia. Well, that's what Pete um, Seeger always said, right? He he claimed anyway that it was the noise that was it was the it was the volume of it. Yeah, yeah. it was um, the drummer on the '66 too, and Mickey Jones. Jones. Yeah, Mickey Jones told yeah. me because I interviewed Mickey. Um, and Mickey Jones told me that they flew in their own PA from Los Angeles to the UK. Now, groups in the UK in '66 didn't have PAs. Mm. They didn't. They, you, went, you went to see a beat group, as they were called, in a club, mm. and they played through Vox AC30 amplifiers. And, you know, perhaps there were a couple of what we used to call WEM columns on either side of the stage which carried the vocals. And that was it. You know, if you look at footage, three, four months after Dylan's Free Trade Hall concert in 66, of the Beatles' last concert... Uh, ever public concert like Candlestick Park in San Francisco yeah. in the summer of 66, you know, they're still playing through those flimsy little WEM columns hoping to fill a, a football or baseball stadium. Yeah. Dylan brought something to the UK that no one had ever heard before and the volume of it was apparently massive and people had a fit. And what he actually says, you know, it's a bit loud all the way through the previous before you know, just before like a rolling storm, it had been loud all the way through the previous forty minutes. Yeah. When John Cordwell, who I, of course I found and interviewed, yeah. when John Cordwell heckles with the Judas shout, Dylan comes back to him. He said what he actually says to him, and this makes much more sense. He says, "I don't believe you. You're a liar." And then he turns away off mic, uh, away from the microphone, which is why it's indistinct. Yeah. And he doesn't say play fucking loud. He, he says, you're a fucking liar. He, he's emphasising what he's already said. Mm. And it doesn't make any sense for him to turn to the band and say play loud. While we're talking about it, this, just because I've been, I've spent years like you, but, you know, just in the privacy of my own home, trying to decipher what is said beforehand. 
I've never heard your great pillock, but what I do hear is someone... Oh, it's there. It's, it's really clear. I can't hear it. What I do hear is I think someone around the... Just before that says something along the lines of, Bob Dylan's the greatest genius since Dylan Thomas. That's what oh, I Oh, really? I, no, no, I've not heard that. And then I... Well, then, because it's so pronounced that I wonder if you're a fucking liar is, is maybe a reference to that. <laughs> it all becomes so complicated when you get as obsessed really? with it as I am. Yeah, but where's, so where's your great pillock? It's after Cordwell. Right, is it, oh, is OK. As it, it's, 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 oh, it's, it's all in a way, it gets a laugh. I hear the laugh. I can hear the laugh. Yeah. I've yeah. never heard the And it's the very, line. it's very, very Mancunian. You know, Kerry Luke, when I first uh, got the bootleg of what was then, of course, called erroneously the Royal Albert Hall concert... Mm. When I, when I was at the university, when I was at Leeds in the late 70s, and that's when I became obsessed with this concert, um, I used to wonder, and it was it, it, the Great Pillock line was, was the clincher. I used to wonder why, if this was the, if this was the Royal Albert Hall, yeah. why, why did all the hecklers have Mancunian accents? Good. And it's yeah. very Mancunian. It was a clue. It was There's a clue. something precedes it. <laughs> yeah, 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 Great Pillock. <laughs> <laughs> we should mention that, uh, of course, your your famous documentary, Ghosts of Electricity, uh, is is available on your website. You can hear the whole thing. In mm. fact, it's an extended version on on the Andy Kershaw website because it's a terrific documentary. But I was going to, if I can ask you about making the documentary, um, and I noticed for one thing, I just listened to it again the other day, that you got you played the songs from uh, the uh, the Free Trade Hall. Almost all of them in enti- in their entirety. Um, yeah. Is is that now? Was that just the one that I was listening to, or was that the in the original documentary? No. What what happened, Kerry? Was I mean, this concert had fascinated me for twenty odd years. Uh, not until that point could I, I, I make a BBC documentary about it, because you can't use you know illegitimate, unreleased bootleg recordings in a BBC doc. Yeah. But once they said they were putting it out, I was straight in there. And with the help of a great friend and fellow Dylanologist, C.P. Lee, mm. in Manchester, we tracked down, and C.P. was one of them, he was 15 and he was in the crowd that night, mm. but we tracked down lots of other people who'd been at the concert and then arranged with Manchester City Council, we got permission to gather them all in the Free Trade Hall before it was gutted one Saturday afternoon to do all these interviews. And I didn't even... T- <laughs> I had a, In those days, I had the, the, the two-hour weekly music programme on Radio 1. But my relationship with Radio 1 was... Well, I, I was like a radio station within a radio station. And so a great producer friend of mine called Richard Masters and I put the whole uh, documentary together and we didn't actually tell Radio 1 we were doing this and putting it out we just put it out within my two hour radio programme so we could play we could play the music at whatever length we wanted they didn't they didn't know I don't think to this day they know it went out Oh, that's incredible, yeah, because I, I loved, I thought it was so important to hear those tracks all the way through. It, it just made more sense of, of the occasion. Yeah, how yeah. can you fade them, eh? How can you uh, fade that version of Just Like a Woman that the, oh, the programme almost starts with? I mean, the poise of that performance, mm. you can't wreck that. You can't barge in halfway through and say, well, that's enough of that. No, um, you've, you've got to let it, just like you've got to let it breathe, haven't you? What about, I mean, you mentioned John Cordwell, and I think it's important that we, we set the record straight there because there's a whole bunch of people out there that think the Judas Shouter was Keith Butler. Now, you're no, it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't Keith yeah. Butler. Like, look, I'm the, I'm the only person 
who knew and interviewed those two people. Mm-hmm. And Keith was undoubtedly there. And Keith... Well, he's in Eat the Document, he, isn't he? He's in Eat the Document. He's, he's, saying, he's the one in the foyer at the end saying, it's a bloody disgrace or whatever, you know. He's making a pile out of it, that one, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's Keith. Now, in fairness to Keith, and both John and Keith now, alas, are dead, mm. um, in fairness to Keith, I think what happened was he read a piece in a newspaper in Toronto where he lived in the late 90s that said that there was this new album, this album of Bob Dylan in 1966, just been released by Columbia, and it's a famous concert, and there was uproar, and there was a lot of shouting throughout it, and somebody shouted Judas. I think Keith, well, I know we know Keith was in that crowd at the Free Trade Hall, and he was probably one of many hecklers that night. And Keith's memory of it was, oh, yeah, I was there and I didn't like what Dylan was playing and I was shouting. So he reads the piece in the Toronto Star, I think it was, and he thinks, that must be me. And I don't doubt that he was a heckler, but what convinced me, Kerry, Luke, was after the first version of the documentary went out where Keith was claiming to be the heckler, out of the blue... Suddenly, at the BBC, a very, the the word would be wounded email from this character called John Cordwell, who said, I don't know why this, I listened to your radio programme, I don't know why this fellow is claiming to be the one who shouted Judas at Bob Dylan, because it was me. And I just thought there's something so plausible about this. You know, memory is not perfect. And, And when I subsequently spoke to John on the phone and then I went up to see him. He met me at a pub in Manchester uh, one afternoon in 1998. And, you know, Keith, by the time Keith turned up to be, Keith Butler turned up to be interviewed by me about being the Judas Heckler, everything was perfect and in place. When I spoke to Cordwell, his memory of it all was very sketchy. And that's what memory's like. Mm -hmm. I thought... Cordwell's account of things was far more realistic and plausible than Keith Butler's. And also we did a... And it was this this thing of he'd not... He'd never spoken up before, but he heard the first version of the documentary and Keith claiming to be the heckler. And after 30-odd years, he thought, wait a minute, that's, that's not true. And it was entirely plausible the way he came forward. And then we did a very unscientific thing, which you can hear at the end of yeah. the documentary as it's archived on, on my website. We're in this pub in Manchester in, in the middle of an afternoon, and it's got a long lounge bar, which is about 30 yards long. And I sent John to the far end of the, this bar, stay at the table, we've been asked at the other end, and rolling my tape recorder, and I get him to shout. And you hear... The voice, and the voice is the same. It was yeah. definitely John Cordwell. Yeah. Keith Butler was a heckler. Keith, with the passage of time and confusion and one thing and another, was certainly making a noise that night, but he wasn't the person who let fly with that shout. It was John Cordwell. I think you're right. And what I love is that in that documentary, you asked both of them what they think of the new, mixed, officially released Manchester Free Trade Hall concert. They both go, oh, it's great. <laughs> 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 After all that... <laughs> 
Speaking of uh, of documentaries, now you did a fabulous documentary on uh, Highway 61 Revisited. Oh, thank you, Kerry. Oh, thank you. Great. So I've got, I mean, I, I've got a few questions about that particular one. Sure, one is, sure. One is just simply this. I, had you interviewed Keith Richards before that documentary? And if so, even... No, yeah. I was about to go as a reporter for the one show on BBC television. I'd, I'd just, you know, I, on my own initiative, I, I, I just wrote to Keith, we have one mutual friend, and I'd written to this friend, written to Keith via this friend, to say, you know, could I interview him for the one show? And amazingly, straight back to me, yes, he can. So when I got in there with him, and I knew I was, you know, about to go to the States to make the documentary about Highway 61. I just thought, let's, let's take this opportunity to, uh, to ask a contemporary, yeah. you know, from that period, what sort of impact it, it, it had on the rest of them. And any other stories about, was he a thoroughgoing professional or? Oh, it's just absolutely everything I wanted him to be. You know, I was astonished that I'd never met him. I've been being in this caper for 30 years that mm. I've never met him before. And I've even worked on Rolling Stones concerts many years ago. Uh, he was absolutely delightful because the point of the interview was for me to talk to Keith Richards, who's one of the world's most admired rock and roll guitarists, mm. about his favourite guitarists. So we weren't in there uh, talking about the Rolling Stones. You know, we weren't in there talking about his relationship with Mick Jagger. Yeah. And he'd al al I'd already been notified in advance that he wanted to talk about Robert Johnson and he wanted to talk about Chuck Berry. And, and when I got it in there with him, when he sat down, you know, we started talking about Robert Johnson and Chuck Berry. What's really great about Keith Richards... And it, it was it was visible in that he lit up when he was speaking about these guitar players. Um, is that he's, for all his fame and for all his wealth, and after fifty odd years of this, he's still essentially like us, a fan. Mm. And that was what was really impressive. He did he did did nick my cigarette lighter though. <laughs> he, he had special dispensation to smoke. <laughs> In, in, in his room at the Savoy, which is where I interviewed him in London. And then after we finished, I was walking back up the Strand and heading for uh, the tube station at Kingsway. And I thought, oh, I'll just have a ciggy before I get on the tube. And I started to pat my pockets. And I thought, the scoundrel, for all his bloody wealth. During the interview, he'd ask me for a light and take my lighter off, off me and then pocketed it, a 49-pence yeah. lighter. Should Keith be the Richards, other way around, really, shouldn't it? You should be. Thanks very it. much. Speaking of, of of interviews, and we can go back and talk about the Highway sixty one one, but I'm I'm all, I, I want to make sure we talk about your Crouch End interview with uh, with Dave <laughs> in eighty five. Oh, must we go on? Yeah, because yeah. in fact, I hadn't realized. I've read your book, which is another thing we have to plug. Uh, uh, no off switch. Your wonderful uh, autobiography, and but in it, you mention that you know you you say it was a disaster and uh, nothing good came of it. But I so mm. I didn't bother YouTube. It. it was only when we got in just today, just a few minutes ago, that Robin, our producer, said, so you've seen the, uh, you know, the interview. Oh, it's awful, Kerry. Yeah. Well, I've seen it now. Yes. <laughs> it's a well, delightful was, was, car was, crash. First of all, it was a total shock that he agreed to do it. And also, I was, I'd only just started on the whistle test. I right. was very young. I was very inexperienced. You know, you can put me in now with... Whoever you want, Donald mm. Trump, mm. anybody. Mm. And 
I'll I'll hold my own. And but back then I was I was wet behind the ears. And what had happened was I'd been um, that weekend just before it happened. I'd been in the states doing some filming for the whistle test on BBC Two for uh, which I worked at the time. Mm. Uh, I was coming back from Boston, and at Boston Airport, I bought a copy of Spin Magazine, the music magazine. And in the news in brief things down the side of one page, it just said dot dot dot. Bob Dylan is recording with Dave Stewart in London. And I looked at this, and I thought, hang on, that's at the end of my street in Crouch End. And then I had my airline meal and fell asleep, and then I got back to Crouch End the following morning, early in the morning, and was really jet-lagged and fell asleep on the floor of the house I lived in in front of this gas fire and woke up sort of late morning, lunchtime, and thought, Bob's at the end of the street. So still sort of half jet-lagged, I thought, I'm going to go and see him. So I pulled myself up off the carpet, went out to the house, and thought, I'll get him a present on the way. <laughs> and there was a Whole Foods store, I think it's still there, called the Healand Centre, in the middle of Crouch End by the clock tower. And just swung in there and put my hand on the first thing that I could reach for. And that was a jar of something called Hedgerow Jam. And bought this jar of jam and walked further up yeah. the hill towards Dave's studio. Yeah. Rang on the entry form thing, and a secretary or receptionist said, you know, who is it? I said, uh, it's Andy Kershaw, it's Davin, please. And Dave Stewart and I knew each other. So she said, just a second, a couple of minutes later, the door opens, and there's Dave Stewart blinking in the daylight through dark glasses. And I hear myself saying to him, <laughs> hello, Dave, have you got Bob in there? And Dave Stewart says to me, yes. So I then say, can I come in and say hello? And he says, yeah, all right then. So he led me in and we went upstairs where this, it turns out, big recording studio. And there are four of those kind of Hessian, they're using recording studios, those kind of Hessian covered screens on, on casters that they usually put round drum kits, you know, to deaden the sound a bit. Mm. Anyway, enclosed by these four Hessian screens on wheels was, well, as it turned out, it was him. Uh, and coming from inside this quadrangle of screens was the most god-awful, out-of-tune, clanking and banging on an electric guitar you've ever heard. And Annie Lennox was lurking there in the shadows, and she smiled and waved at me. And then there was the physical revelation of Bob, in that Dave Stewart, over this noise, Dave Stewart motioned to me to pull on one of these screens, and he pulled on another, and we exposed him. And there he was, in a blue and, in a blue and white leather jacket and cowboy boots, banging away on this Fender guitar. What, a, what, what an awful racket. Can, can I point out, I don't think anyone has done this so far, that not a single note, not even on bootleg, has appeared in the public domain from those Bob Dylan 1985 recording sessions in Crouch End. I think I know why. <laughs> yes, I'm sure they were rightly destroyed. I and mean, he was just banging away. Was he, was he writing, do you think? Do you think he was trying to find a tune? He was, he, was, he was kind of strumming, and it was out of tune. Um, anyway, it very quickly came to an end, and we sat down on the edge of a drum riser, and he was really nice, you know. Dave said... Dave Stewart said, you know, this is Andy, he works for a, 
a music TV program here in the UK and he's a huge fan of yours. And Dylan was very friendly. We shook hands and all that kind of thing. And then I gave him the jar of jam and with the words, Bob, you've done so much for me. I wanted to give something to you. Mm. And so he took this thing off me. And I always say, because it's the most accurate description I can think of, it was like handing a chimpanzee a mobile phone. He <laughs> kind of kept turning it over in his hand and looking at it, and thinking, what do you do with this? And then I heard myself saying, it's jam, Bob. Of course, they don't call it jam, do they? They call it jelly. Um I hear myself saying, it's jam, Bob. Hedgerow jam. Made with real hedgerows. And he, he, put it, he just puts it down on the drum riser, and it's probably still there to yeah. this day. And then you got the cameras in? Then I phoned up the whistle test office. You know, they didn't have a permanent, dedicated film crew on call 24 mm. hours a day. Mm. And I spoke to Mike Appleton, the editor of Whistle Test, the founder of Whistle Test, and said, Mike... I'm sitting in a recording studio with Bob Dylan in Crouch End and he says he'll be interviewed. And Mike had an absolute bloody seizure. Of course he did. No one, Dylan had never been interviewed for British, for British radio or television until this point. So Mike had this enormous flap and then somehow summoned up a BBC news crew who came up to see me. And of course, by that, that stage, I was in, I was in a state of shock. Uh, in no condition to conduct an interview at all. And then the next thing that happened is, whilst Bob was quite friendly in, in these preliminaries, uh, as soon as the, the, the film crew arrived and, and, and set up the cameras, he became taciturn and monosyllabic, which I think actually, you know, looking back now, I think was pretty unprofessional. If he'd not wanted to be interviewed, he should have said no. But to let the cameras come and then set up and then just grunt throughout the interview, I think was poor form, to be he honest with you. does it with a glint in his eye, and you ask him some pretty tough questions too. I mean, it's great viewing. He Thanks, sort of... Luke. After all this time, it's, <laughs> it's perhaps a quite an allure. No, I mean, you put it him on the spot. You ask him about, about Live Aid, and, you know, you know you, <laughs> it's a pretty brave thing to say. If this was the year of Live Aid, right? You're saying, that wasn't great, was it? Wonderful stuff. Oh, well, you know the story of Live Aid, don't you? Well, we've seen, you know, I think actually of, of Live Aid, that's one of the things that people remember is just how shambolic um, Dylan's Well, I'll always were. remember my friend and co-presenter on the whistle test, David Hepworth, telling me that it must have been a journalist friend of David's. Anyway, it was David that told me the story, but uh, a journalist who was in Philadelphia, uh, and I'll never forget the phrase, he said that um, throughout the day in the backstage area, by the caravan occupied by Dylan and Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards. <laughs> All day long could be heard the merry clanking of bottles. <laughs> Glad someone was having a good time. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Th that was when he, when he advocated uh, Farm Aid, wasn't it? That's when he said we should be giving money right, to yeah. the farmers. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing was. Well, it was very brave of you to ask him about that, but I, I don't know if, and he certainly um, wasn't very pleased about that, but, but he had that look in his eye the entire time, didn't he? Like he, you know, that look, that he gets that look where he's looking at something on a ceiling at the end of the universe. You know, he's, yes. his eyes are like, they're just not on, <laughs> on this planet. How long did it go sure. on? Because we, we've seen it's only five minutes. Uh, oh, not much more than that. Uh, no, there's, there, are no there, there are no outtakes, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, but didn't you see him then? I think you, you mentioned me. You saw him, like, 
1993 when he was looking for houses in Crouch End? Oh, it, it was mad. The summer of 1993, what had happened was he'd had this relationship with Dave Stewart. There'd been those recordings in 85. That relationship, I think, continued. Dave Stewart lived in Crouch End, where I did, and where the recording studio was in North London. And I came out to my flat one morning. I had a little flat, one-bedroom flat, right in the middle of Crouch End on a very busy junction. And it was 20, 30 yards for me to walk to the news agents first, in, first thing in the morning, you know, pint of milk, newspaper, that kind of thing. And in the early summer of 1993, I was walking those 30 yards to the newsagents one, and between me and my flat and the newsagents was an estate agent. And I was going that short distance, and I looked up, and possibly the most famous profile in the world that Hook knows that human American bald eagle was staring through the window of this estate agent. And I, I looked, I thought, that's fucking Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, and it turned out that he'd got a thing in his head at the time that because of his relationship with Dave Stewart, he wanted to buy a house in Crouch End, so he was house mm. hunting. Um, and my um, partner at the time had a, still has, a restaurant in, in Crouch End, and he even came into there one evening with Victor My Moods, you know, mm. his long-time uh, friend, travelling companion and chess partner, and um, sat themselves down in the restaurant. Uh, and alas, I wasn't there at the time. Um, didn't find out about it until just afterwards. Uh, mm. with, with little knowledge, shall we say, of um, British licensing laws. This place had a, a restaurant licence, so, you know, you could only get a drink with a meal. Right. And the two of them sat down, and this waitress called Donna, who was of Jamaican origin, uh, they, they said to her, hey, two whiskies, please. And Donna said, are you eating? And they, no, we're not eating. Oh, I'm sorry, we can't serve you alcohol without, without um, unless you're eating. Uh, anyway, they didn't grasp that at all. And um, they kept asking Donna for two whiskies. And then in the end, my mood said the most uncool thing he could have said. Don't you know who this is? Oh, God. I know. And Donna, why should she? Mm. I mean, she, culturally, she's not from that background at all. Donna looks at Dylan and looks at my moods and said, no, I've no idea who this is. Uh, at which point they got up and walked out the restaurant and uh, boot heels are wandering. Um, <laughs> well, last seen, you know, heading off in the direction of the clock tower. And he thought, Crouch End isn't for me after all. Well, he did go and look at a Two or three people told me he went and looked at houses there. My friend Simon Kellner, who in those days used to edit the Independent newspaper, was selling a house, mm. and he, he turned up to look at Simon's house, yeah. <laughs> but the story of going to the wrong yeah. house yeah. Is, is nonsense. Is it? Can um, you testify that that's... Yeah. Is yeah. it just passed into popular understanding. I mean, how did it yeah, happen? I think, if it's, I think so. You think somebody think just so. made it up? I think so. The reality was actually more bizarre and more entertaining than that. There's me. It's like half past eight in the morning, fresh out of bed, running along the street for a packet of ciggies, and there's Dylan looking through the window of an mm. estate agent. What more do you want? Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. um, another good bit of, of your book is this one day that you spent in uh, Memphis in 87. 
which started off with Sun Studios and went on to the Lorraine, Lorraine Motel. And I'll, I'll just because time is slightly short here, it ends up with you giving James Carr a call. Finding James Carr. Finding James Carr. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, everyone said he was, the understanding was he was missing. No one knew where he was. And how the great, did you find the, him? The, the, the greatest soul singer that ever stood before a microphone. So what happened? Tell us, tell us the story. Oh, really? Are we, are we off Bob for a minute? Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, why not? We're big, you know, we're big James Carr fans and we okay. other, oh, other well, places we to, can go. Happy yeah, to. Yeah. What had happened was I'd been sent to Memphis to do a, a BBC documentary, which I'd completed, and then I got 24 hours to kill in Memphis. I was then going to catch a plane from Memphis to Raleigh in North Carolina to go and hook up with uh, some friends of mine who live in North Carolina and my sister who was flying in from the UK. But I, I got 24 hours on my hands in Memphis. So I did in that morning of me day off. Hmm. What you'd expect me to do in Memphis is I went to some studios and I wandered along Beale Street and I wandered beyond Beale Street and then accidentally found the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And then I was back. And What I'd done is... is I'd checked into, knowing I was having to fly out the following morning, I'd, I'd checked into a kind of boring airport hotel hmm. at Memphis Airport, the Memphis Hilton. I was back at the hotel by early afternoon, and I thought, what the hell am I going to do for the rest of the day? Anyway, I crossed the foyer, went into the lift, up to my room, and walked in and saw the, at either side of the bed, I saw those two things you always see in an American hotel – which is a copy of the Gideon's Bible and the phone book, in this case, of course, the Memphis phone book. And I looked at this phone book and I'd had with me a cassette of James Carr recordings from the mid to late 60s for my own entertainment on this trip. And I thought, James Carr was from Memphis. I wonder how many cars are in the... So I opened the, sat on the bed and I opened the phone book and there were a number of people listed there called Carr... And I just started from the top of uh, that list of cars. Mm. And I had a little prepared speech in my head, which I trotted out to the first few people, which was along the lines of, hello, you don't know me, but my name's Andy. I, I work for the BBC. I'm a, a radio reporter. I'm in Memphis at the moment, but only for 24 hours. And I wonder, with you being called Car, whether you might know of a James Car who recorded You Got My Mind Messed Up for Goldwatch Records here in Memphis in 1966, I think it was. And I trotted this out to the first few people and with that lovely kind of southern courtesy, although they got this kind of ranting, cold-calling loony on the other end of the phone talking some nonsense about <laughs> some singer and the fact that he works for the BBC. Um, from the first few people I got, no, sir, I'm afraid I don't. And I said, well, okay, well, thank you very much, and goodbye, and moved on to the next one. And after about six or seven of these, a woman answered the phone who immediately introduced herself as Rose. She said, hello, this is Rose. And I said, I gave Rose the speech, you know. Uh, name's Andy, and here in Memphis, just for 24 hours. Possibly no, a James Carr who recorded, he got my mind messed up. Anyway, and she said, at the end of this speech... She suddenly said, I sure do. And I said, you do, Rose? Go on. She said, I sure do. He's my brother. And I said, wow. 
Rose, do you happen to know where James is at the moment? She said to me, I sure do. He's asleep on the sofa in the next room. And I said, oh, my God. Well, Rose, you know, with my apologies, please would you go and give a gentle shake to him and ask him if he'd mind coming to the phone. So about a minute later, I hear the phone being picked up again and this hoarse voice says, hello, this is James Carr. So I give James a version of the speech and I said to him, and I'm at the Memphis Hilton at the moment at the airport, but I'm only here until tomorrow morning. Please, can I come and see you? And he said, are you a white boy? And I said, uh, yes, I'm a white boy. He said, I wouldn't come here. I lives in the projects. I said, okay. I said, would you be prepared to come and see me? He said, I ain't got no money. I said, James, don't you worry about that. If you can get a taxi and get out over here, I'll be waiting, I'll go down now, and I'll be waiting on the front steps of the hotel, and I'll pay the taxi driver to bring you out to wait, and then to take you back to Rose's when we finished speaking. About 45 minutes later, a ta- I'm sitting on the steps, a taxi pulls up, and out gets this beanpole of a guy, probably by then in his late 50s, with a kind of slightly disorientated look about him. And this was him. And we sat down and talked. And the tragedy of it was, you know, I'd read all lots of stuff where I'd picked up this information that he disappeared and no one knew where he was. There'd been a lot of allusions to him having had sort of psychiatric problems in the past. And we sat down in this hotel foyer and I ran my tape machine and he had no memory. He had no memory. Whatever those problems had been, had seemingly erased everything. And I really tried, you know. I'm sure he came from a gospel background before he started singing the secular stuff. Mm. Um, but there was there was nothing there at all. And what was particularly poignant is this cassette that I got. Of I put onto cassette from an American import LP I had of his stuff at home. I'm, put it onto a tape so I could carry it with me. I had no intention of going looking for him. This was all Mm. spontaneous. Mm. I got those classic recordings from Goldwax from the mid to late 60s on a cassette. Mm. And then he sat there with headphones on and listened to them. And um, Dark end of the street and all of them. Well, I I need hardly tell you because it was was almost the, uh, it was the norm, wasn't it, for, for so many singers and musicians mm. from the American South who were black mm. at, at, in that period that he, well, he'd not heard them in years and years. He didn't have copies of his own. Yeah. And he told me he'd never made any money from them at all. I wish he could have he known was, what, what people like us would, you know, how, what we think of things like, that's the way love turned out for me. And, oh, and I just, crikey. These are towering, yeah. towering records. Yeah. I mean, Otis Redding was really good, but James Carr was the greatest. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. Yeah. And he, he never made a penny from, from those records. And then, of course, he died in about 2001. Mm. The, great, the greatest soul singer of all time, you know, only because of the kindness, the compassion, the love of his own sister on whose sofa he was sleeping, uh, what wasn't destitute. God, Appalling. It really is a tragedy. 
I'd like to, we're going to have to wrap it up in a bit. We should end with something a little more upbeat, I think. Um, we haven't talked too much about the uh, the wonderful Highway doc, uh, 61 documentary that you uh, that you made. And uh, one of the things that surprised me was that you played a track of the, um, or rather a cut of the Chambers Brothers backing in on Tombstone Blues. Yeah, I think, I I think that, was, that, that, that was before... Because it's now come out, hasn't it? Yeah, on um, the cutting edge, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, on the cutting edge. Um, but I think Jeff Rosen, Bob's manager, with whom I've always had a uh, a very good relationship, Jeff let me have that for the documentary even before it it, it was um, released on the cutting edge. So, so you get along with Jeff, and uh, do you think Bob has uh, forgiven you for the uh, faux pas? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, Jeff. Jeff likes me stuff. Um, he's said very kind things about the Free Trade Hall documentary. Mm. And he said very kind things about the Highway 61 documentary. But we have, we have a little routine. You know, when I'm doing one of these things, I ring Jeff up and say, like in, in the last case, the Highway 61, I ring up and say, hey, Jeff, I'm coming over to the States. You know, there were only seven people left alive who were involved in the making of Highway 61. Uh, I've got... Um, agreements to to interview six of them. Do you, do you think this? Do you think the seventh might speak? And he goes, Andy, I understand you have to make this call, right? But you know the answer before you ring. I said, Okay, Jeff, I have to go through the motions. <laughs> so I got the others, but no, I don't get any feedback from from Dylan himself. But you know, Jeff Rosen's very it's, it's Rosen who's been behind the very meticulous. Release of, yeah. of of the archive stuff, mm. yeah, and just very very good in that in that way. He understands the value of what Dylan's done in the past, mm. and and so therefore, I think it's one of the reasons he's appreciated uh, my documentaries about about things. Yeah, great. Well, we got to wrap it up, Andy. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, really. Has. All right, and uh, just remind your listeners. Gary uh, Luke, if they want to hear those documentaries, if they just go to my website, andykershaw.co.uk, they're archived there and they can listen at their leisure. Absolutely. They, 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 can hear, they can hear Frank Owens, the pianist, on the first day of the Highway 61 sessions telling telling, <laughs> telling us that Dylan, Dylan hadn't finished like a rolling stone when he went into the studio. Can you believe it? Fabulous. <laughs> Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Liberty Street Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare. Wait, sunglass can make pony run. Tombstone, baby, y'all can get done. Fool's gold in your teeth and cemetery hips, baby. Outside of your graveyard lips. Yes, everybody's wondering when your friendship's gonna end. But come on, baby, I'm your friend. <laughs>